Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Horsham. This message is by Colin Squires. We're continuing in our series on Romans and, uh, and this is our last one before the summer. And we've come at this really great point at the end of Romans chapter 8. And out of the, the book of Romans, this is kind of the halfway point. But more than just the halfway point in pages, it is this absolutely amazing, everything lifting up and leading up to this moment. Romans 8 is a beautiful, incredible, densely packed bit of scripture that if we today draw out the truths that God wants to reveal through it, man, it's like this life-changing stuff. I mean, it all is, right? But Romans 8, anyone else would say, if you had one bit of the word that was your favorite chapter, it would be Romans 8, right? Like, it is amazing. And I believe that God wants to speak through his word today. We're going to try today to do some line-by-line expository preaching. Not, don't think I'm very good at this, so bear with me, but Holy Spirit wants to speak through it. Now, over the next five weeks, we're going to have family services. Over August, we've got At The Movies. If you were here the last time we did this, it was a great time, like movie posters and theme music and all this stuff and all these messages, gospel messages, but but brought out from different movies. And it was a brilliant time that just Jesus spoke through, but also it was just a great time to bring people to. And people came going, wow, this is what church is like. This is amazing. It opened their eyes, not just to what church is like, what Christianity is like, but most importantly, what God is like. And actually, that's going to be great. I'd really encourage you to bring people along, but it's actually, that's what God wants to do this morning. He's open to eyes. So what is he really like? We're going to start with this sentence or this line, this phrase. Your perception is your reality. Now, this is something that that Simon Coles, our exec pastor, and I would also like to consider a friend and and even a mentor, um, says this to me often. I say, Simon, there's this stuff going on. This is the way I see it. This is why I see life at the moment. He says, well, I don't see it that way, but your perception is your reality. But maybe if your perception of what's going on changed, your reality would change. And this isn't just true of the way we understand life and Christianity and the word, but it's also just true in psychology. And this is a really kind of a cutting edge area of psychology, the way that our experiences affect the way we process the world around us. Um, I remember uh, sharing with you guys back in when we looked at Romans um, 6, I think it was, about this lady that I knew who was actually very wealthy, but she always considered herself poor. Her husband had always managed the finances and basically given her a little bit of pocket money every week. She was an elderly lady, different times back then. And she thought that was all she had. After he passed away, that was all she spent. Her perception was that she didn't have much money. And so her reality was one, poverty. But it was based on not truth, but perception or misperception of truth. Does that make sense? So in 2006, Carl Gergenfurtner, isn't that a brilliant name? And a team of psychologists from the University of Geisen in Germany um, took pictures of bananas. Everyone know what a banana is, that yellow fruit, right? This is the important bit. And he showed them to people in black and white. And yet, Pete said, at what point is it 100% black and white? Has it still got color in it? They were more and more, you know, desaturated. And everybody still saw, even at the point where it was completely monochrome, still saw yellow on the banana. Now, the reason being that we are so utterly convinced, we so completely know in our experience that bananas are yellow, 
that even if you show us a picture in black and white, our brain says, yeah, but really we know it's yellow. And this is the kind of foundational understanding we need to have of what God is like and who he is. That even if the situation we're presented with looks like God is not here, we are so convinced that the fruit is yellow, so to speak. We're so convinced, but I know that I know that I know who God is. You can show me what you like. I know the fruit is yellow. Our perception, our reality would be altered for the good by our perception. Does that make sense? So we have got this, uh, this cheesy Instagram parable to, uh, to kick us off this morning, allegedly by, um, uh, posted by Carl, uh, Kirk Franklin, who's the American gospel singer and, and uh, Christian Twitter user. And he said this, two twin boys were raised by an alcoholic father. One grew up to be an alcoholic. And when asked what happened, he said, I watched my father. The other grew up and never drank a drop in his life. When he was asked what happened, he said, I watched my father. Two boys, same dad, two different perspectives. Your perspective in life will determine your destination. It's interesting here, isn't it? These two boys saw the same thing, but they came to different conclusions. The perception of what happened was different. Now, what could that have been down to? It could have been down to different life experiences. It could have been down to maybe different relationships, better advice, perhaps. Um, it could have just been the way their thought process, the way they processed what they saw. But the filters through which we see the world and relationships are important. How much more so our perception of God and who he is? Last week, my wife was speaking and wow, what a brilliant message. Now, I know I'm probably going to be a bit biased, but I'd like to say objectively and not subjectively, it was an incredible God-breathed, God-spoken word. And if you missed it, I know we say this a lot, but please, please read it because so much of, or listen to it, because so much of what we're looking at today follows on from that. And it was just a beautiful communication of the way our father sees us as adopted us. She actually asked me afterwards, she used this example at one point just to say um, that my, God has given me a husband, me, Colin, and, uh, and as good as he is, that's a drop in the ocean compared to how gracious God has been to me. And she said, was that okay to say? I was like, of course it is. What a brilliant example. Everyone knows how amazing I am. <laughs> it's okay. It's really just covering a crippling um, self-confidence issue. Um, not really. Um, so anyway, last week she was speaking. And one of the things she spoke about was how our perception of God as father can be so impacted by our natural fathers. So much of our understanding of who God is, is impacted by our experience, by the teaching that we've had, by philosophy, sociological, cultural, or moral stances inherited from our parents or our church backgrounds. Our background knowledge or things we think we know. We're going to try and do a bit of a social experiment this morning. I'm going to see if it works. If it all goes horribly wrong, just chalk it up to the worst illustration you've ever seen in a message. But we're going to see if it works. So are you ready? So first of all, I'm going to need to divide the room. Annie, you're going to be split right in half. Everyone this side of Annie, you are side A, and everyone this side, you're side B, okay? If you're online and you've got two people in the room or whatever, you can split this on your own, decide on your own. If you're one person, maybe just close one eye or the other eye, whatever you want to do. But the important bit is that we all really need to listen carefully. So are you ready? Mark has a date. He wants to impress her. So he talks to his friend June and asks for a restaurant recommendation. June's only too happy to help and tells Mark all about a place that she went to recently that had only just opened. 
She'd visited it and loved it. So Mark books the restaurant and that Friday night picks up his date and heads over. You with me so far? Okay, this is the point where we need to split the room. So side A, I'm gonna ask you all to close your eyes. Now this is really important, you mustn't peek. Please make no noise, don't look around, don't look at anybody, just close your eyes for a minute, okay? Side B, something's gonna come up on the screen that's only for your eyes only, okay? So let's have this up on the screen. Please don't make any noise or any intimation that you know what's going on or anything like that. Let's just read that for a moment. Got it? Let's remove that from the screen. Make the screen go blank. There we go, lovely. And uh, anyone, you can open your eyes again. Now we're gonna swap. Side B, can you close your eyes, please? Remember no peeking. Side A, if you look at the screen, the next slide will, slide will come up. Just give you a moment to read that. You guys got it? Okay, let's remove the slate from the screen. Everyone, please open your eyes. Thank you for not peeking. Now, the story continues. Are you ready? You're listening. Mark gets home from the dinner date and immediately calls June. She's not in, so he leaves her a voicemail message. He says this. The phone rings. Beep. Please leave a message. He says, wow. Just wow. Thanks so much for your great restaurant recommendation, June. Honestly, thank you so much. Hangs up the phone. Now, please put your hands up who, if you were June picking up that message, would hear genuine, thankful, really warm, like, oh, that was brilliant. Thanks, Mark, left a really nice message. Put your hands up. Okay, great. And hands up who you thought, if you heard Mark leave that message, you were like, what a sarcastic, horrible, cruel person. That was really not very nice. <laughs> oh, interesting, what's happened here? Can you guess? <laughs> One side of the room, I showed a slate that said, Mark had a brilliant time and absolutely loved it. The other side of the room, I showed a slate that said, Mark had a terrible time and absolutely hated it. Here's what's interesting. You both heard exactly the same message with the same tone of voice, but some of you read into it sarcasm and some of you read into it warmth. I'm not an actor, maybe my delivery wasn't perfect, but we get the idea. Generally, we will read into what our experience has, has given us to believe. Now, in this instance, that kind of makes sense because I told you explicitly Mark had a bad time, so you probably would hear sarcasm. But June didn't know. So June, her impression is going to be based on her past experiences. If June had grown up where every person she knew was passive aggressive and sarcastic and a bit cruel and not very nice, how do you think she'd have heard Mark's message? Our experience completely dis can distort the same information to give a completely different outcome. Our perception is our reality. How often is that the case with God? We hear him saying one thing, but he means something else. I thought about the, in, if you've done the freedom course, there's one point where this, this one bit of teaching shared where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do my commands. Depending on your view of God, you'll either hear, if you love me, you'll do my commands. Or you'll hear, if you love me, of course you'll do my commands. And it completely depends on our view of God. The opening line of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, is this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
I mean, Jesus clearly expressed this, didn't he? He said, how many times did he say, you've heard it said that, dot, 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 but I tell you the truth. He was taking mindsets and understandings of certain teaching of God's law or who God was, of who God is, and he's saying, yeah, but it's more like this. And he would expound upon it. He would fulfill it. He would explain it better and deeper. And that is exactly what Paul is doing through these last uh, verses in Romans chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, please open it. We're at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to see if we can do this, as I say, line by line, and we'll see if we can get through all 12 verses today from chapter 8, verse 28, all the way through to the end. Now, Romans chapter 8 is really, if we could head it, kind of give it a heading overall, is Paul communicating the security that believers have in Christ because of the nature and character of God. That's what our security is based on, who he is and what he has done. So let's see how we go. We're going to see if we can unpack Paul's five unshakable convictions about God's providence or God's sovereignty, his oversight of the world, five undeniable affirmations about his purposes, and five unanswerable questions about his love. We're going to start with verse 28. And it says this, we know this verse, right? This is one of those like top of your memory verse list verses. And it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We're going to go word by word, line by line. If you've got your Bible, you can circle bits and make some notes here. We're going to start with this. We know. This is Paul, how he starts this off. We know. And this is vitally important. Paul actually bookends these verses with this. We know at the beginning and at the end saying, I am convinced of. I'm utterly convinced. And in fact, the word that he uses for convinced is the perfect tense in the Greek, which means I am completely and will go on to be utterly convinced. He says that I have become and remain rationally settled and unalterably convinced. This knowing about who God is and what Paul unpacks here is so important to our understanding of our life as Christians. Earlier in the chapter, this is really interesting, Paul says, we don't know what to pray for. So there are some things that we don't know. And it seems to be that that's okay. He says the Holy Spirit will pray on our behalf or intercede for us with groans too deep for understanding. There are some things we don't know, but this we do know. Even more, maybe we must know. And how important it is then as Christians that we don't say we know about the things that God says we don't need to know about. And also, how much we, say, we, we don't say, I don't know, about the things that God says we do know about. We mustn't mix the two up. It's dangerous ground. So we know. Do you know these things? Do you know who God is? This is to be our foundation, that God is for me. He loves me. He's called me with a a purpose. This perception of him that affects our reality. So we know, it's the first bit, that in all things, in all things. Now this is really important. This is so important for us to understand that all things in the Greek means all things. (laughs) All things happen to Christians. That is, Christians' circumstances are no better than anybody else's. Many Christians explicitly teach, and many more of us, and I probably could have lumped myself in here at at different points in my life, implicitly believe that if we love and serve God, everything will go well for us. Everything will just be a bed of roses. It will be like cloud nine. Everything is just great. Anyone been Christian for more than five minutes? (laughs) 
And it's not true. In this, this chunk of verses we're looking at, Paul talks about some of the horrible, terrible, tragic things that happens to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He says that um, uh, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, poverty, danger, or sword, even death being attacked, await, can await those. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. You know those memory verses, you know, your like pocket Bible of Jesus' promises? That's not normally number one for some reason, is it? But it, he says it, he promises it. In this world, you will have trouble. Horrible things can and will happen to us as Christians. And if you're thinking, well, this isn't sounding like very good news <laughs> this morning. I'm not sure how encouraged I am. Bear with me, bear with me. It's important to know that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this himself, said, I'm led by the Spirit. I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what waits for me there, but the Holy Spirit warns me about beatings and imprisonment. The Holy Spirit leads him into difficult times. The Roman Christians that Paul is writing to here, are just a few years later, within five years, are going to experience such just awful persecution under Emperor Nero, that at one point, according to historians, he was rounding up Christians and literally using them as human torches to light his courtyard. As in, he was putting them in cages and lighting them on fire to bring light to his courtyard. Horrible things have, will, and do happen to God's people. You might be going through a really, really hard time it might feel like you've been set on fire. But you are not alone. You have not done something wrong. God has not forsaken you. You're not cursed. And we might think, yeah, gee, Colin, thanks for just such an encouraging message. Bad things are going to happen. Amen. You know, let's close our Bibles and go home. It doesn't end there. But it is so important to acknowledge this because if our perception is that God is only good when everything is going well, then our reality is going to come crashing down when the things that Jesus promises us happen. And that is just a, a vain and thin, shallow optimism, not the sure and certain hope of a future that Jesus has for us. And this morning, I, it might sound, I'm not sure this is good news, but it's good news if it breaks in you something shallow and flimsy that is just a mere optimism, oh, I hope everything will go well, and replaces it with a sure and certain unyielding faith that no matter what, God is with me, he is for me, and he is working all things to my good. God works. This is the next line. We know that in all things, God works. Now this word here is, uh, the theological word is theodicy. This is an understanding of a good God at work in an evil world and how all these things fit together. And our theodicy is important. It's also very tricky kind of discussion to have because it's so nuanced and it's a massive topic. We'll come to it later, but... Um, it's important that we do look at it and we have an understanding of this, of how a good God works in our broken world. Now, some translations render these verses, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's not a very helpful translation because it doesn't really relate what's happening in the Greek, and the word order here is very important. We know that all things don't just work together for good. That's kind of a bit of a, of a mentality in the world, isn't it? Everything happens for a reason. Every cloud has a silver lining. It will come good in the end kind of thing. 
this is actually not what's, what's talking about here. The law of entropy that we see in the world and the way that God has created the world, if you've ever watched Jurassic Park, you all know um, that, uh, as Jeff Goldblum explains, everything tends towards chaos. Things don't go towards order. If you take a mountain, it will crumble down eventually into sand. If you leave a pile of sand, it won't suddenly turn itself into a mountain. Things are decaying. This world, it says in, in 1 John, is under the control, the dominion of God's enemy, the devil. There is death at work in the world. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. There is a brokenness in our world that Paul even talks about a little bit earlier in Romans 8. But it's, so it's not that all things are working together for our good. Again, that optimism, hope everything will just come good in the end. It is that in and through all these things, these difficulties and struggles, God is working. He is at work. I love the way John Stott puts this in, puts this in his um, commentary on Romans. He says, ceaselessly, energetically, and purposefully on our behalf. Everything. It's also important to know that this, these God, God works for our good. That everything good everything good is because of God. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from God. If we have health today, if we have someone who loves us, someone to hold our hands, a shoulder to crown, it is because solely of the goodness and grace of God. We have a reason to be thankful in every situation, every circumstance, because he is always working. So we know that God works for the good. This is something that only God could do. In his goodness and mercy, he turns evil situations around and brings good and freedom, redemption out of them. He redeems the situations. It is not to say that the situation was good. The exposure to sex and pornography that I experienced as a child was not good. The decisions I made as an adult to continue in that kind of lifestyle of sexual brokenness were not good. And yet God in his mercy and his goodness not only takes something that is broken and damaged and redeems it and makes it whole, but then he takes that thing that was damaging and turns it around into a weapon put in the hand of one who serves him and says, now stand up on a stage and call other men into freedom. Take what the enemy is meant for evil, use it a weapon to cut off his head and bring my freedom. Not just a conqueror, more than a conqueror. A conqueror would overcome the enemy. More than a conqueror takes what the enemy meant for evil and turns it for good. And we're, gonna, we're not going to have to come back to more than a conqueror in a bit because we can talk about it now. But this comes later in these verses. More than a conqueror. If you are going through a hard time, if you're experiencing loss, I do not believe that that is what God wants for you. For the good here, this, this word for the good, doesn't mean better circumstances. We also need to know this. When someone says, oh, I didn't get the job. How many of us might have replied, me too, um, it's okay, it's because God has a better one for you? Anyone says something like that? Yeah. Is that always the case? And this, is, this is important. Again, this might sound like, I'm not sure this is good news, Colin. Where are you going with this? <laughs> Bear with me. Because we're Christians and God loves us, does that mean he's just going to give us the best jobs or the best whatever it is or whatever? Bear with me again. 
Sure, sometimes he does do that. He loves us. He wants the best for us. It says that if we delight ourselves in him, the Bible says that he will give us the desires of our hearts. He lavishes his grace and his goodness upon us. Does he want us to be blessed? And that means happy, by the way, that word just means happy. Yes, he does. So does he take an, a difficult situation in that moment where there's pain or sickness and heal immediately? Yes. Does he take the job loss and provide something better? Yes, undoubtedly he does. But is our faith in an assumption or an optimism for something immediately, tangibly, and temporally better? Or is it for our highest good? For our good might be realizing that we need to prepare more for the interview. Maybe we've been a bit lazy. And God's giving us the opportunity to address it. Maybe he wants to address an air of fear in our life or the fact that we never prayed about the job in the first place. And he's saying, come to me, come to me. I want to use this as an opportunity for your highest good. Or maybe it's just, I want to have some more time with your kids. They need you right now. Don't be out to work, be with them. Whatever it might be. Maybe he wants to bring just a greater humility or trust, whatever it might be. Sometimes God will give us the better job, but he's more interested in our highest good, our hearts, our eternal good, than he is in a bigger paycheck and a company car. So when something bad is going wrong, rather than make an assumption of God's just going to turn it round, because again, is this not just the same thing of this vain, flimsy optimism, to say, God, what do you want to do in this? Show me where you are in this and what you want to do out of it. If the limit of our understanding of the scope of God's goodness for us is merely physical and temporal, we miss where he wants to work the deep and eternal good in us. And again, if the next job is worse than the last one, we come right back around to then doubting God's goodness, maybe even doubting if he's there at all. God is not promising better circumstances, but a better life. He is not working all things together for our comfort. He's working all things together for our good. Lastly, on this point, I don't think Paul's intention was to be talking about specific situation by situation kind of account. Excuse me. But an all-encompassing one. Life is not the random mess which it sometimes appears. It's not a question of how is God to turn this one thing around and bring this one immediate thing around for good? How could God bring a good immediately out of this evil? But even this thing, even this this bitter loss or tragedy, even this thing, God will weave into the vast tapestry of our lives that when you step back from to admire side by side with Jesus from eternity, it will say, God is good. If this doesn't sound like good news to you, maybe I'm just not conveying it very well. But what God wants to do in us is this resolute, unalterable, unbending, unyieldable conviction that God will work for our good, will be with us through every circumstances, no matter what. It is not saying these verses that nothing bad will happen to you, but God will never leave you nor forsake you and will turn it around for good. Is this not a wonderful promise? Yes. Last, these last two points of this one verse, oh no, we're only on 
we've got one verse so far. Okay, we're, we're making good progress. Here we go. These, by the way, these verses, the reason we're doing is line by line. I don't usually do line by line because I, I just end up going off on one, which may be what we're doing right now. But these verses are so densely packed with really deep, meaty theology that I felt like, oh, we can't just kind of just pick one and move on. So I, I, maybe I'm not doing the best job of this in the world. But Holy Spirit, you, you say what you want to say through your word, through this. The next bit. So we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. Not then a general sense of good things going well for all people, that everything happens for a reason kind of mentality. It will be right in the end. Not that thin optimism, but a faith-fueled certain hope that God's plan will win out for his people. And if you don't know him this morning, this can be for you too. This next verse is so key. And called us according to his purposes. Yes, we love him, but our love for him responds to his call to us. And maybe this morning, God is calling you. When you're watching online, you're in the room, there's a sense of, wow, man, stuff is going wrong in my life. But to know that God would never leave me, never forsake me, he would walk me through it and even give me victory over it and through it, this is a promise for you if you want to accept it. And this last verse here, the last part of this verse says, and called according to his purposes, if there were ever any temptation for us to think, if I just try to love God more, my situation would go better. The reason things are going wrong are because I just don't love him enough. This puts that to bed, puts it to rest. Who called us? Now, if you spend some time thinking about these verses, you will likely start to ask the question, well, why do bad things happen then? If God is good, why is there evil in this world? This is one of the ultimate questions. This is the biggie, right? This is what we talk about at Alpha. It's the question that if you don't know Jesus, this is one of the first questions that's up there. Without a satisfactory answer, I'm not sure I could really know God. I'm not sure I have an entirely satisfactory answer that I can give you right now because this thing is so big that we would need probably another week at least to go through it. I mean, this whole idea of like a meticulous providence or general providence or Armenianism and Calvinism. If you know what I'm talking about, like, well, there we go. This is a big topic. This has been talked about for centuries. But I do want to just give you a few thoughts from the word. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Well, for a start, there is free will, which he's given us and respects. The world is under the control of sin and the devils we've talked about. There's the fall of man, all these kind of things. But through it, we read stories like Joseph, when his brothers sold him into slavery, he said to them, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. Jesus went to the cross. What an evil. It's a torture device. There's nothing good in the cross. And yet out of it, God intended for good. And for both of these, because Joseph is a, is a Christophany or a foreshadowing of Christ, it says that many might be saved. And to Jesus, that many might be saved. Does that mean that God did evil so that good could come out of it? What about the blind man when the disciples came and said to Jesus, who caused this man's blindness? Was it his, his father's sin or his mother's? Where does this come from? Jesus doesn't ask the question like that. He just says, so that God's glory might be revealed. And we might think, so did God make him blind? so that his glory could be revealed later? And this is a massive question, but I want to leave you with just a few thoughts from, the, from, the, from reflection from my own experience and from what the Bible says. As a father, it is my intention to use every, all and any suffering that my daughter may experience for her good. 
as an opportunity to learn. Now, if we say, for example, if she were to fall down and to scrape her knee, she might say, why, Daddy, did this happen? And maybe we could talk about those whys. We talk about, well, the laziness of the person who laid the paving tile, or maybe of the person who pushed you over, or the evils of, of uh, disease and that inner ear infection you've got, which meant you're a bit wobbly and fall over. Or do I just say, as um, Alfred says to Bruce Wayne in the, uh, the Batman film, Christopher Nolan's Batman film, why do we fall, Bruce? So that we can learn to get back up. And an opportunity to learn and grow. If, so, if a girl is mean to her one day, which will happen at some point, it is my intention that that not be just left as something bad, but an opportunity to learn forgiveness. Do I, knowing this, trip my daughter up every time we go up for a walk? No! What kind of father would be if I'd be like, whoops, why do we fall, Harry? So we can learn to get back up. And then like, Kate, Kate's just like on all fours, stood behind her like this, you know, and I just go, oh, got you again! What kind of father would I be? I don't believe God is that kind of father. It is important to realize, though, that God will use things that don't feel great for our good. If a machete-wielding madman ran out into the street and chopped your leg off, is that good? No, I think we'd probably all agree that's a pretty evil, bad, suffery kind of thing. If a surgeon amputated your leg to stop the gangrene spreading to the rest of your body or the blood poisoning and so to stop you from dying, is that an evil, suffery thing? I know there may be suffering in it, but it is for good. And I think that is a really important thing to understand and to see. But I think it's also often the exception. If we look throughout the, the history of Scripture and throughout the Old and New Testament, God did eventually say, okay, Israel, over to Babylon, you know, Babylon, Babylonian exile. But it was after centuries of him giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change. It wasn't his not go-to. Let's make it hard for you, so then you'll, then you'll learn. I think here we're seeing that God's goodness is just so much greater than we, we put it in this box. God's goodness is limited to the paycheck and the company car. It is so much bigger and far more far-reaching. So what can we learn about then our Heavenly Father from these verses? He is not a violent drunk beating you up to say, I'm toughening you up. He is not an absent father, never there to help, listen, step in or defend. He is not an uninterested workaholic father who when we come to him in pain says he's on the phone, I'm too busy, hands you some cash and says, go get yourself something nice. But he's a father who identifies us in, with us in our pain and suffering because after all, he suffered too who leads us, through, leads us through our circumstances as a victor or a conqueror over it, and even then makes us more than a conqueror. I just want to read you this. This is, this is an extract from David Bentley Hart's book, The Doors of the Sea, which he wrote in response to the 2004 tsunami in Indonesia about God's goodness and where he's at work in the world. He said this, of a child dying in agonizing, an agonizing death from diphtheria, or a young mother ravaged by cancer, or tens of thousands of Asians swallowed in an instant by the sea, of millions murdered in death camps and gulags and forced famines. Our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. Yeah. 
So we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. It is a face, a faith that has set us free from optimism and taught us hope instead. We are permitted to hate the evil things in this world that destroy and twist and break. But we have a, a hope in our God, our Father, who is good and will redeem these things. If you are still left like thinking, okay, well, how do we understand this? I think um, the way Timothy Keller puts this in his uh, exposition of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, when his friend Lazarus, Lazarus dies, Jesus goes to the tomb and he explains it like this. Mary and Martha are weeping at the tomb, have lost their brother, and they look over at Jesus. And what do we see on Jesus' face? A confident grin. Don't worry, guys. It's not as bad as it seems. It's okay. This isn't, you think this is bad, but no, this is good because this is an opportunity for my goodness. Watch this. And he rolls up his sleeves. Lazarus! Come out. No, that's not how the story goes. They're weeping at the death of their brother and they turn to see Jesus. And what is he doing? He's weeping with them. Jesus is weeping at the pain and loss of death. He's not just smiling going, oh, this is just an opportunity. He identifies with Mary and Martha in their loss. And then, knowing that it is a bad thing, brings good and life from it. John Mark Comer said this, no matter what you face, whether your life is easy or hard, whether your dream comes true or you face crushing disappointment, no matter what it is, God is with you. You are not alone. He knows suffering better than anybody. And if you turn over all the broken pieces of your life to Jesus, he has an uncanny ability that God and only God has to take the broken pieces of your life and to turn it into something beautiful to something, to somehow take evil, and though it is evil, turn it into good. Now, we've got five minutes to do the rest of the verses. Let's see if we can manage this. Ready? We're going to speed exposition our way through these. After these five unshakable convictions about God's providence, Paul makes five affirmations about his purpose. We're doing these really quick that we might perceive that our salvation is completely and utterly down to him, not a work of our own. It starts with from his foreknowledge. This word foreknowledge may be better translated foreloved. He knew the knowledge here, the word knowledge is known as in in relationship with. He foreloved us. Before creation, he loved us. Those that he foreloved, he also predestined. That means decided upon beforehand. Before you were even a twinkle in your father's eye or mother's, um, he chose and, call, and chose us. Those that he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He not only saves us and makes us new, he then doesn't leave us, but continues this work through to completion, making us a disciple, making us more whole and redeemed and right. Those that he conformed to the likeness of his son, he predestined to be conformed. He also called, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is that moment of salvation. But our salvation, our decision for Jesus is a response to his call. Jesus said, you cannot come to me unless the father has drawn you. 
Those he called, he also justified. That means made new. Pastor Colin, I love the way he put this. He would say, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. This is justification, made new. And then glorified. Glorified is when we die one day and we go to be with Jesus and we have a new body and sin and shame and pain is wiped away, wipes every tear from our eye. It is all gone and we're just this glorified, new, Jesus-filled, perfect, finished works. It's in our future. And yet so certain is Paul's conviction that this is where we are headed, that he writes it in the past tense. You are so assuredly going to be glorified that it's as though it's already happened. God is utterly committed to seeing what he has started through to completion. He will truly never leave us nor forsake us. Let's then see if we do these last verses. Paul asks these five questions that are unanswerable by anyone. It's almost like he's coming up and saying, who wants a piece of me? It's a rhetorical question. He's like, I dare anybody to answer this. Let me see what you've got then. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, he doesn't ask who can be against us. If he did, we'd have a long old list, right? Well, we'd have the devil, you know, we'd have all of those Christians who disagree with our theology. We'd have the, the um, you know, certain humanists and things that think we're just all backward people and all that kind of stuff. Probably our mother-in-law. Like, we'd have all these people against us. But he doesn't ask who's against us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us in comparison? It is this rhetorical question that says, if it is God then why even bother making a list? Two, he says, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also then, along with him, graciously give us all things? Have you ever had the question in the back of your mind, can I trust God with my finances? Will he come through for me? I'm still single, but I'm trusting God for a partner. Can I really trust him with it? This, this, this passage is saying, if God has given his own son everything else, that's easy, right? You can trust him with anything else. He's already said, I'll give you everything you need. Everything else is easy. Three, then he says, who will bring any charge against those or accuse those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies The picture here is of a courtroom and God the Father as judge. And he's already banged the gavel, passed his decision and said, not guilty because Jesus has taken our guilt. Jesus, guilty. Every accusation, guilty of Jesus. But of you, not guilty. And then the the devil bursts into the courtroom, the accuser of the brethren. He says, well, what about this? What about this? Haven't you heard this accusation, that accusation? And the judge turns and the devil realizes it's the Father, God is the judge. And he's like, oh, great. And the judge bangs the gavel again. No, I'm not hearing any more evidence. The decision has been made. God has justified us. So who can bring any charge against us? It gets better. Who then is it that condemns us? Then there's a question mark. No one, it says in the NIV, which is really helpful addition, because then new sentence, Christ Jesus who died. So it's not who is it that condemns. Christ Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes the, uh, in certain translations, you might take that away. It's not what it's saying. Who then condemns? No one. Because Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So this, this devil who's in the courtroom to the judge, the Father God, saying, they did this, they did that. On the other side, not only is the judge saying, I'm having none of it, but even then our defense lawyer comes through, Jesus Christ, eternally saying, 
actually, this is the way it is. This is what happened. I am an advocate for them. I will stand in the gap and I will not let these accusations stand. Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. What an incredible, Dane Ortland, by the way, put this beautifully in his book, Gentle and Lonely, The Heart of, Gentle and Lowly, the heart, of, the heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I highly recommend it. Fantastic book about this kind of theology, about who, what is Jesus' heart towards us. And he says it's like this, this picture of, imagine a, uh, a glider being taken up by a plane, towed up by a plane, released at the point of its highest point, ready to be released, ready to find its, its landing place. And that would be us. You know, he's lifted us up out of the mire of sin. And then instead of setting us free to go on our way now, the tow cable never detaches. He says, it's all right, guys. I'm taking you all the way in. He's always interceding. Now, in our perception understanding here, the one thing that this could lead us to the perception to is that God the Father is cold then. If Jesus is needing to intercede for us, is it because the Father's, if he wasn't, the Father would be like, Right, better smite them good then. You know, they need a good smiting. If it wasn't for Jesus, you guys were, you'd be in trouble. That could be the picture we have, but it is so far from the truth. The theological word here is pactum seleucis, which is that this, this prearranged, pre-agreed redemption between God, the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, this is the plan for salvation. And the role is Jesus, you'll intercede. And the Father's role is I will, I will grant your requests. Pactum salutis, covenant of redemption. And again, Dane Ortland put it this way, Christ does not intercede because the Father's heart is tepid towards us, but because the Son's heart is so full towards us. But the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. Our last verse then, now, who shall separate us from the love of God? Paul then lists a few things that we might think of. We're going to skip through these really quick. We've kind of talked to them about a little bit earlier. And then he makes these, these couplets. Neither life nor death. That's anything that might happen in our life. Not even death itself. Nothing spiritual. Demons, angels, nothing in the spirit world. Nothing physical. He talks about present and future, height or depth. That's time and space. Nothing metaphysical. He uses the word here, powers, which is likely referring to the astrological powers that many in the Hellenistic world believed in and the planets moving around and fate and these are the things that govern us. So your horoscope cannot affect this. Mystic Meg and her crystal ball cannot affect this. <laughs> nor, and then Paul adds at the end, nor anything else in all creation. So we could, if we had time, go, okay, think of something you might think uh, could separate you from the love of God. Not that. <laughs> think of something, you, you know, in your darkest moment, you think, oh, but I've done this. Oh, surely this is going to, not that. <laughs> Paul is saying there is nothing, absolutely nothing that could separate us from his love. John Stott then once again in his commentary puts it like this and I will leave it with this. These, these amazing verses that Paul has taken on this journey through displaying and, and unpacking what is the heart of the Father towards us. Paul's five questions are not arbitrary. They're all about the kind of God that we believe in. Together they affirm that absolutely nothing can frustrate God's purpose since he is for us or quench his generosity since he has not spared his son, or accuse or condemn his elect since he has justified them through Christ, or sunder us from his love since he has revealed it in Christ. If our perception is our reality, who do you perceive your heavenly father to be?
Shall we stand and let's just pray? God, Father, good Father, whatever idea that you have had of God as Father, if anything that from his word today has just challenged it in any way, let's just repent. Lord, forgive me for where I've seen you is less than you reveal yourself to be. And thank you that you want to show me just truly how good you are to live in the good of all that you have accomplished. That my relationship with you would not be in any way hindered by a wrong mindset that you're distant or cold or aloof, but you're the Father who in loving kindness has drawn me to yourself. In the name of Jesus, right now, we come against every mindset every vain imagining that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and who he is. And in the name of Jesus, using the weapons of our warfare, our prayer, our intercession, the word itself, we tear you down and break you off. And Holy Spirit, we ask just as Jesus prayed, would you come and teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that you have revealed that we would know in our times of difficulty, the Holy Spirit remind us, this is how good our Father is. This is what he is doing. Lord, I surrender my mind to you afresh. Father, forgive me for my pride of thinking I know better. I know how you are and who you are better than you say you are yourself. Forgive me. And Lord, help me see you for who you truly are. In Jesus' name. Now there's going to be some, the, the, the real nitty gritty of this response is going to be in the coming days, weeks, months where we find ourselves in a tricky situation, that we would not, I encourage you, ask why. God, why is this happening? But rather you ask, God, what do you want to do in me through this situation? What does this good coming out of this look like for me? And I also want to give us opportunity, Just we're just going to... You okay if we just take another couple of minutes? I believe that there is something that's important to know that despite all this good that God wants to do in this turning things around, there is an immediacy to it as well. And I believe that just God wants right now, if there's, if there's sickness, if you are experiencing something of just, yeah, disease or whatever it might be, to ask God, God, is this what you want to do right now? Is this the way you want to reveal your glory? Is right now this moment, just bring healing. And if that's the case, if you're like, yeah, God, I just sense, that's God, what's, what, what you want to do right now? We can just thank him for it. And I thank you, Jesus. For those you want to heal right now in this moment, Father, just for your healing grace upon them, I speak health and life and liberty in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Now, I'll, Pastor Clive's just going to come in just a moment. We're going to close, but I also want to invite you, if you are experiencing any situation at the moment where you're like, this is just tough, I don't know where God is, or I just, I need God to come through. Then after we close the service, I want to invite you to come forward and there'll be a, a, just a, a bunch of us here just to pray with you and agree with you. Because whatever the situation, hopefully what we've seen through this today, you're not meant to go through it on your own. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources from Kingdom Faith and our other audio and video podcasts, please visit www.kingdomfaith.com.